This is week number 31 in our discussion of the book of Daniel. Uh, for you who haven't been here or maybe here for the first time, we're over in chapter 7, and we've been kind of stuck in verse 25 for the last couple of weeks uh, because there's so much information there. You remember this uh, prophecy was, or this vision was given to Daniel in the third year of Belshazzar, who was the last king of the Babylonian Empire, so this is somewhere 15, 10 years before the end of the Babylonian Empire that Daniel gets this vision uh, from God directly. And you remember that Daniel saw all the four beasts coming up out of the sea, and those four beasts um, correspond to what was given in chapter 2, where there were four, at least four parts of a great image. And so Daniel sees these beasts, and he's not too concerned with the first three, but the fourth one greatly disturbs him. And so there's a bystander, and Daniel asks him for an explanation of what's going on here. And the the bystander gives him a very terse uh, interpretation in verses 17 and 18, but Daniel's not satisfied with that. And so he goes and he asks additional questions about this fourth beast. And so the bystander is giving us details um, about the fourth beast and specifically about the 11th horn which comes up among the first 10 horns. And so in verse 25, we're given three specific things that this horn um, will do or wants to do. And you'll remember these, that the, the first one of these is that, well, I'm trying to think, is that he will uh, speak out against the Most High God and he will wear down the saints. And you remember that we talked about this, the the highest one there refers to not just anybody or not just God in general, but as it's been used all throughout the book of Daniel, it refers to the ruler of the realm of mankind, meaning that this, this horn who has eyes like a man and a mouth like a man, so he is a man, he's a human, he's speaking out against the very one who's the ruler of the realm kind of the realm in which he lives. So this is not going to end well for for this little horn. But yet he keeps arrogantly boasting and he keeps wearing down the saints of the highest one. You remember back in verse 21, Daniel actually says that he wages war and overcomes the saints, meaning he's winning the victory. He's winning the battle. He's destroying the saints of the highest one. And that goes on for a while. And then the second thing that he says um, about this horn and the actions that he will take is that he intends to make alterations in time and in law. And we, we talked about that and realized that what he's talking about there, this is in a Jewish context, so he's talking about worship and the way that the Jews worshiped God. And it speaks specifically about the law of God and about the festivals and all the activities around the festivals which were designated in time and were very specific in when and how they should be performed. And so this little horn will intend to change those. And we talked about how this is foreshadowed in history by Antiochus Epiphanes of the Seleucid um, kingdom in 170 A.D., when um, Antiochus heard of a Maccabean revolt that was going on in Jerusalem, he then came into Jerusalem, took it by storm. He killed 40,000 Jews and sold another 40,000 into slavery in the span of three days. He then went on to sacrifice a pig on the altar of God in the temple and spread its juices all throughout the temple to defile all the temple. He also forbid Judaism. You could no longer practice Judaism. If you did, you would be killed. He also forbid reading of the Torah or any of the Hebrew scriptures. And so this is clearly an example of changing times and changing laws. And, and this is just a foreshadowing of what the little horn will do at the end of the age, except for to a greater extent. And so we see this uh, an example in history, but yet not the fulfillment of this prophecy. And then we also have the third thing 
that um, the bystander is giving Daniel information about in verse 25. And that was that phrase, a time and times and half a time, indicating one plus two plus a half, three and a half periods of time. And we, we talked about this. this. This short passage of Scripture leads us to two other passages of Scripture, one over in Daniel chapter 12 and one in Revelation chapter 12. And the same phraseology used in those two passages. So before we get into that, and I do want to review a little bit of what we talked about last week, let's just read the, the, the end of chapter 7 of Daniel. This is the passage that we will finish today, right? <laughs> so I said. So in Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 25, there the scripture reads, speaking of the little horn, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One and will intend to make alterations in times and in law. They will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion of the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. So Daniel doesn't tell anybody this dream until he writes about it, or vision, until he writes about it here um, at least 15 to 20 years later after he first received this revelation. And so we, we were talking about this time, times, and half a time, and it, it led us over to discuss some of the New Testament um, prophecy that's given because we're, we're trying to gain information about what is meant by this times, times, and half a time. Now, over in Daniel chapter 12, he clearly equates this times, times, and half a time um, to 1,290 days, okay? And we talked about that. The, Jew, the Jews had 360 days in their uh, year as opposed to 365 and a quarter that we currently have. And so 360 times three and a half does not equal 1,290. It equals 1,260. And so we talked about the fact that the Sanhedrin Council, at their discretion, every now and then would add a month to the Jewish year. So they would have a 13-month year. And the reason for that is because if you only have 360 days in your year, then ultimately you're going to get out of sync with the seasons. And so the, the festivals, which were very specific and when they should be done at the harvest time, would get out of sync with the harvest if you continued on with 360 days. So when that began to happen, then the Jew... Um, the Sanhedrin Council would add a month of 30 days and so they would then get back in sync and then of course over time they'd get out of sync and they weren't precise in when they did it they didn't do it every 7 years or every 10 years or any specific given time it was at the discretion of the council and we'll talk about this more when we talk about the 70 weeks of Daniel and how does that equate to the time when Christ uh, was actually on the earth and sacrificed. So we'll, we'll get back into that. But suffice it to say that three and a half years is 1,260 days, but perhaps during this three and a half years is the time when the Sanhedrin Council added 30 days to the calendar, and so it would actually be 1,290 days would equate to three and a half years. So I think that's what happened. That's what's going on here. That's why chapter 12 equates three and a half years to 1,290 days. Okay, so that being done in Daniel chapter 12, we know these are years, not just abstract periods of time. The three and a half, the time, times, and half a time equates to three and a half years. Now, that means the weeks of Daniel equate to seven years as opposed to seven days. Because um, in the end of chapter 9, where he gives that in the last week, in the middle of the week, that there is the abomination of desolations. And that's what's being spoken of over in chapter 12 when he talks about 1,290 days. That during, from the time of a, um, 
the abomination of desolation to the end, there's 1,290 days. And then back in Daniel chapter 9, at the very end of the chapter, in verse 27 specifically, it talks about the time that the abomination of desolation is in the middle of the week and it extends to the end of the week. So three and a half there equals three and a half years. So we know that Daniel chapter 9, when we talk about 70 weeks, is really talking about 70 years of sevens, so 490 years. So we'll talk about more of that later. But we got that equivalence um, by looking at those specific passages. And then you jump all the way over to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 14, where this same term, times, times, and half a time, is used to speak of the time that the Jews are protected by God by hiding them in the desert that the woman who's Israel flees to the desert on the wings of an eagle, meaning they're supernaturally moved there, and then God protects them from the dragon, which would be Satan, for three, for times, times, and half a time. And so for the last three and a half years of the tribulation, the Jews will be protected. And so we, we have to go there to gain information about what Daniel is writing about. That led us, of course, into other things. And specifically, we were back in Matthew chapter 24 where Christ is speaking of the time that's never been and never will be again is the way he describes it. He's talking about the tribulation time at the end of the age, the time in which the question posed to him um, has to do with um, how will we know when you're coming again? And he gives this long detailed description in Matthew 24 goes all the way into 25 where he's giving parables about the same thing and gives this description of what will happen at the end of the age it equates to what will happen during the tribulation in Revelation and we'll make some of those correlations in a long time when we get over to Revelation but that'll be a while but here we're just trying to gain information about what the little horn does during this period of time. And you'll remember that we read in, um, in, De- in Matthew chapter 24 several things, but let's just jump there for a minute. And we read this passage that has to do with how bad will it be during the tribulation time. Now, Matthew 24 where in, in response to questions that were being asked him, and you have to realize this is during the week of passion. This is at the very end of Christ's life. This is the, basically the last things that he says before we get to the upper room and that long discourse that we talked about when we were teaching in John, that this is the, really one of the last things that Christ does and says to his disciples in a public setting. And, um, and so there were other people around who, who heard what he had to say here. But specifically, we were reading down beginning in verse 20. And he talks about just how bad will it be um, during this time. And you remember he's speaking to the Jews now. And he says in verse 20 of Matthew 24, But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, For there will be great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. This is a unique time. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And then he goes on down and and he continues to describe this. So if, if God doesn't intervene, what's going to be the result of the tribulation days? Every human being will die. That's how bad it's going to be. That is, is, is the response of Satan to being cast down to the earth and the havoc that he wreaks through the person of the Antichrist. If, some, if God doesn't do something, then the whole earth will be wiped out. And so he does do something. He does intervene. But this is, the, this is Jesus Christ describing how bad it's going to be when the little horn is persecuting not only Um, those who are his enemies but more specifically those who believe in Christ and so he he is going to wreak unbelievable and imaginable havoc on the planet and it's going to go on and on and on and so Christ never defines how long it is 
But that's why the revelation is given. So how long is this going to be? That's why Daniel chapter 12 is, going to, is given. Because that is the question posed in Daniel chapter 12 is how long is this going to last? And it's going to last for a time and times and half a time. So it's not given here by Christ, but it's certainly given in other places that limits because if it doesn't get limited, it's going to wipe out the whole planet. And so this is what we were discussing last time when we, we left off. And we, we were talking about that in this same passage, you'll, you'll help me find it, where Christ says that um, for the sake of the elect, that if God doesn't do something, even the elect could be lost. Yeah, and it's... It's more in verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Now, we know that's not possible, but the reason it's not possible is because God limits it at the end. If he doesn't, even the elect are going to be misled. So by the power and strength and wisdom of God, he will limit it before the elect will be Deceived. Now, I have a question for you. What does that mean is true about the time when Christ comes again to limit the actions of the Antichrist? People have to be being saved during the tribulation. Why would I say such a thing? Because if everybody is raptured out, then there wouldn't have been any elect there to redeem. So either A, you have to not believe in the rapture, or B, you. <laughs> And there are many people who don't believe in rapture, right? I mean, there are. If you believe in the rapture, and we do as a church, and all your elders believe in the rapture, um, we are pre-trib rapture people. Um, we could be wrong, but that's what we believe. We believe that's what the scriptures teach. Then uh, if your doctrine aligns with ours, then you believe that the church will be raptured out before the tribulation. So if there are elect during the tribulation... Clearly, they have to be people who are saved during the, the, the seven years, right? Okay, now you all notice also there are some at the end of the age because they're still there whenever Christ limits what the Antichrist can do so that they're not deceived. So there are people there even at the end who are true believers. All true believers are never killed out totally. Go ahead, Keith. The question... Uh about that last seven and a half years is maybe the whole seven years is whether the people being saved during the tribulation are all Jews they're not all Jews I do believe <clears throat> that all the Jewish people who are on the planet are saved in the last day now again I could be wrong but let me show you why I believe that Okay, there, there are a couple passages I want to take you to the one that speaks most about why is this going on? Or, well, let me t- take you this way. <clears throat> if you believe in the 70-week prophecy of Daniel and that it has not yet been fulfilled, which is what we believe, then you must believe that the seventh week has been put on hold, right? Because 69 weeks led up until when the Messiah was cut off. And so this 70th week would have been the next seven years after Christ lived if it hadn't been put on hold. But I believe it's been put on hold until the end of this period of grace, what we call the church age, what some people call the age of the Gentiles. Now, where does that term come from, the age of the Gentiles? It comes from Romans chapter 11. So let's go to Romans chapter 11 for just a minute. And I'll show you why we believe that this last week of the prophecy given to Daniel has been put on hold. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 are phenomenal chapters. If you've never studied them, you ought to. Because chapter 9 speaks of the sovereignty of God and the salvation of men. It is so clear you couldn't miss it. Okay, four examples of God being sovereign and the salvation of people are given in chapter 9. You ought to study it. You ought to study it. Okay, chapter 10 is your motivation for evangelism. 
chapter 11 explains the age in which we're in now. If those three chapters weren't there, we'd have a whole lot of stuff we didn't know. But they are there, thank God. And so beginning in chapter 11, I'm going to take you through selected passages. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. And if you were here when I taught Romans, that means that's a crazy thought. That's absurd. May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, so Paul knows who he is, and he says, God has not forsaken the Jewish people. Okay, this is after Christ. This is after, um, you know, um, we have a new covenant, and and Paul says that God has not forsaken them. Then verse 5, in the same way, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Now, what Paul is saying is there has always been, there will always be a small remnant of Jewish people who truly believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. There are today, there's a few, most do not believe in Christ as their, as their Savior. So a remnant, a small remnant always has, always will believe. Okay, so there will always be, to the end of the age, a small remnant. Then he goes on, he says, verse 7, What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. So this small remnant, a small minority of Jews who truly believe, is by the will of God and by the action of God to choose some and harden the rest. Hard, hard to understand, difficult to accept, yet it's explicitly clear right here in this verse, is it not? This is what we talked about, the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God and the salvation of men standing side by side, never crossing, but both are true. That men are responsible but yet God is sovereign in their salvation. And so those two never cross their parallel lines, but they're both true, and they both stand side by side in Scripture. Here they are in this one verse. Okay? So here we, we keep going, and you go down to verses 25 and 26, which are where they talk about this period in which you and I live. So beginning in verse 25 for I do not want you to you for I do not want you brethren to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in that's the fullness of the Gentiles and so Israel will be saved just as is written all Israel will be saved the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, meaning that all those who are descended from Jacob will believe. He'll remove ungodliness from them. For God to do that means that they're saved. All of Israel is saved. Now let me show you in Revelation where I believe that takes place. So you see this period of the Gentiles, right? Until they're hardened, they're blinded, they can't understand until the fullness of the Gentiles. So there will come a time when God will declare that the fullness of the Gentiles is in. All those he wants to be true believers have become so. Then the Jews believe. And that's given over in Revelation. I'm looking for it. I believe it is chapter 7, down around verse 25, 26, 24. I was close. No. No, 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 no. Give me just a moment. Revelation 11. No. It's going to be a little before that, so it's going to be in... Sorry. Where is it? 
No. Revelation 11, verse 12. This is a scene of, uh, there's two witnesses that come during the tribulation, and they're killed in the streets of Jerusalem, and the whole world rejoices at their death. And they let them lay in the streets for three and a half days, just laying there. And then God speaks to them and says, Arise and come to me. And this is what happens when they stand up. Okay, so I'm looking again. But after the three and a half days, I'm in 11 11. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. Now, these people have been rejoicing to such an extent, the whole world, that they're giving presents to each other because these three guys have been killed. Okay, They've been around for the whole three and a half years of the tribulation, and they've been preaching that you need to repent and place faith in God and they're killed and the whole world rejoices and gives presents to each other and then in verse 12 and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them come up here then they went up into the cloud and their enemies watched them and in that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven this is Jerusalem where the walls fall Okay, these are the Jews, and the walls fall and kill some of their brethren, and the rest give glory to God. They understand, their eyes are open, they believe in Christ, because in the next chapter, chapter 11, or chapter 12, is where you have the Jews fleeing to the wilderness for three and a half years. They have to flee, because they're going to get killed by these other people who are the enemies of the two witnesses if they don't flee so this is what Christ is talking about when he says pray that your flight will not be on a Sabbath or in the winter this is the time when they flee and they're protected in the desert so these things all work together they don't work apart from one another they have to reconcile to one another All right now so the time of the tribulation will be horrific and Christ described that in great detail for us right there, there is this amazing picture of why God allows it to be so bad given in Revelation. It's given in Revelation chapter, I believe it's, sorry, I'm just struggling today to find all my references because I went out of order. And when I go out of order, it confuses me. Revelation chapter 6. This is the breaking of the fifth seal by the Lamb who's worthy to open the scroll. Okay, and you remember there are seven seals on that, and as he breaks them, horrendous things happen on the planet. But when he breaks the sixth seal, nothing happens on the planet. This is a scene in heaven. So in chapter 6 of Revelation, down in verse 9, breaking of the fifth seal, when the Lamb (laughs) broke the fifth seal... I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our death on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed. So here you have the saints in heaven, true believers, who've been slain because of their testimony for Jesus Christ, probably most of them during the tribulation, lost their lives because they would not bow the knee And so they cry out, God, please go and avenge. And God in his sovereignty and in his wisdom says, rest. Just rest for a little while. 
I've got more people that I want to be slaughtered. Now, why would God do that? Why would God, the God of love, have his own people, those who truly believe, to be slaughtered and join these under the altar? Why would he do that? I don't know if it can get any worse than being killed, especially at the hands of the Antichrist. So, go on. Absolutely. So this is to give who, who, apart from those who've been slain for their testimony for Jesus Christ, could give greater glory to God for all that he's wrought? Nobody. Go ahead, Jerry. doing the same thing filling up the suffering of Christ by giving their lives because of their testimony no one will be able to give Christ greater glory than those people no way they do it on the planet and then they do it in glory and so there will be a testimony for all the ages go ahead Will the Jews be able to do that? Or any of that people that are saved during the tribulation time. All right. If it's three and a half years at the end. I think I know where you're going, okay? There's this teaching in Scripture that the coming of Christ is imminent and no one knows the day, okay? That's the rapture, not the end of the age. The end of the age will be very clear. Because the Jews will believe, they'll flee into the desert. These things that are prophesied will be unfolding, and anybody who bothers to read and believe will know, but not about the rapture. The rapture will be imminent and sudden and unexpected. That's the coming. That's the parousia that we see given in Scripture that is nobody knows when the day is or when the time is. Not the end of the age. The end of the age will be very clear in how it plays out. We're given very specific details. We won't be here, so we won't be calculating. Go ahead. So is that three and a half years? Is that from Daniel? Is that where mid-trib people get three and a half years? I'm sorry. Can I do that? No, no, that's fine. <laughs> that, you know, there are, there are pre-trib people, there are mid-trib people, and there are post-trib people. I could convince you, I believe, of any one of those three. Okay. Because I would take selected scriptures to do so. And you would go, well, I never believed that before. And you would. So you need to study. Unless you've studied, I could do that. Okay, but if you've studied the whole council of scripture, then I believe you'll wind up being pre-trib rapture of the church. Okay, it's in the white spaces between chapters 3 and 4 of Revelation is where it's at. If you look real close in the white spaces there, you'll see it. <laughs> Okay, we'll talk about that later. Okay, we will, in great detail, excruciatingly so. Go ahead. Uh, we just read a little while ago, uh, with, with Tim, or Daniel, that all Israel will be saved. Mm-hmm. Chapter 11 of yeah, Romans. The word all, yeah. is that only those who believe that Jesus Christ, in fact, was the Messiah, or is the Messiah, or all Israel who believe in Jehovah and follow what do I believe that says? I believe it says that every Jew alive on the planet will place faith in Jesus Christ. There won't be a lot of them, but there will be enough where they have to flee to the desert. That's what I believe. Now, I could be wrong, but it says, it doesn't say all Jews. It doesn't say all. It, it's talking about the descendants of Judah is what it's talking about there. And that's Jewish people. That's all of them. Probably, probably, probably. That's why we see this mass exodus of the Jews back to their homeland. That's why the whole planet is decimated and people die everywhere. 
Lots of people die. Billions of people die. Go ahead. Right. Going to tribulation, and one third are going to be preserved. Right. I believe that's the remnant that's going to be saved. Yeah. That whole yeah. Don't disagree with that. Third, yeah. And, and how that all orchestrates? You just think about this. If temple worship is resumed in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, or before, do you think the Jews will go back to Israel? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 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 Because an Orthodox Jew would have to because they're commanded by God three times a year to go to the place of central worship, which would be Jerusalem and the temple. They will go back. So could they all potentially be in that one location? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because there's peace on the earth for three and a half years. There's a lot of bad stuff happening, but it's not war. There's peace for three and a half years that the Antichrist sits over before he performs the abomination of desolation, there will be a mass flocking to Israel, to Jerusalem. Follow up. <laughs> That's okay. Go ahead. Um, do we have any inclination? Okay, I, 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 am I assuming correctly that we're referring here to um, biological Jews? Are we referring to direct biological descendants? No, we're talking about true Jews. Let me show you why. Back over in Revelation, I'll show you where this distinction is made. I can find it again. You always ask me something out of turn. Okay, in in chapter 12, where you've got, um, where I believe... um, Chapter 11 is where I believe the Jews believe. In chapter 12, there's this picture of a woman who has a child, who's Christ. The woman is Israel. The woman is forced to flee. The dragon tries to catch her. He can't catch her. That's because God takes them on the wings of eagles to hide them in the desert. So, in response, the dragon has been thrown to the earth by Gabriel. His realm is now limited to just the earth. He can't go back into the heavens. He's limited to the earth with all his demons. That's why it gets so bad in the last three and a half years. And then at the very end of chapter 12, the very last verse, this is what he does. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children. You heard Shane teach chapter 4 of Romans? where there are multiple lines that descend from Abraham, and one of those lines are Gentiles who truly believe as Abraham did. That's who these children are. Israel is in the desert being protected. The rest of her children, meaning those who believe in Christ as Abraham did, that's who the the dragon goes after. That's who he's enraged about. Those children are not biological. They're faith children. They believe the same way that Abraham did. That's clear in chapter 4 of Romans where Paul makes that argument about there are biological people and there are non-biological people who are all the saints of God and the children of Abraham. That's who we're talking about here. Okay. So which ones are fleeing to the desert? Then? True Biological, uh, biological Jews. That's what I was saying. So, if the, if, are we talking about? That's what I was trying to get. If the biological Jews are fleeing to the desert, then all of the biological Jews will be saved. Mm-hmm. Do we have any inclination of how many biological Jews there are in existence now? And if a third of them will be the ones that are saved, will Israel be big enough to hold them? Israel will be big enough because it happens. Okay. Where, where, where does a third come from? Did I miss something there? He said a third, and he's reading from Ezekiel. We, we, yeah, yeah, we haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> and we, we may never get there. But there, there are many people who would agree with him that it's a third of the Jews. Okay. So, I mean, we're not studying there yet. <laughs> and I'm not sure we ever will, but uh, at least in this class. 
but I mean, there, there, are, there are myriads of scriptures all throughout the major and minor prophets about what we're talking about that you've never heard of before, that you, you just need to go read. And in context, believe what it says. I mean, we're, we're going to touch on some of those after Daniel, before Revelation, okay? I'm going to go and show you how some of this works with some of those other minor prophets, but not until we get done with Daniel, if we ever get out of chapter 7. Go ahead. So go, going back to Revelation 6, yeah. those um, that are under the altar, yes. slain because of the word of God, right. testimony, Right. those are post-trib saints. I think it could be pre-trib also. Uh, it doesn't limit it to only post-trib. It just says people who died because of their testimony. So it could be some of the saints who've been there for a long time who were killed Old Testament times. It doesn't limit it. So maybe they're there now, and they're waiting. There clearly are some that come out of the tribulation. But they would not be considered church members. Church. Church speaking, the true church speaking of people who truly believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the Savior of the world, right? Not church that we talk about. Um, I know this. There's a later picture in Revelation where there are myriads, uncountable numbers of people standing before the altar of God who came out of the tribulation, which I think means got killed during the tribulation. Maybe not at the hands of the Antichrist, but they died during the tribulation times. And so maybe those are people who just died naturally or of all the disasters. And these are people who died because they had a testimony for Jesus Christ. Don't know really know, but you see both of those groups of people in Revelation. These are people who died because they had a testimony. Go ahead. How does the 144,000 see it? <laughs> Not going there. We'll go there when we get to Revelation, okay? Not going to go to the 144,000. <laughs> I just want to make a quick comment about this whole discussion that uh, whenever I'm in it with those who have issue with uh, who are post-trib or who have an sure. issue with all Israel being saved and Romans 9, 10, 11 and that whole, whole deal, Nowhere do we hold the position that those who are saved after what we'll call the church age or the age of the Gentiles, nowhere do we hold that they are saved apart from Jesus Christ. No. And they like to go to that place, those who would differ with us, and say somehow God's going to save the Jews some other way. Right, right. And Re- Revelation twelve eleven is a great spot talking about those in the middle. It said, and, and they overcame him. Mm-hmm by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives even to the death. Hey, let me be even more specific. We believe in every person since the foundation of the earth who has been saved, will has been saved and will be saved by the blood of the Lamb. Every person who will be in the eternal kingdom of God will be there because of the blood of the Lamb and their belief in it period. You can go to any age, any time, anywhere since the creation of the world. Every single person. Old Testament, New Testament, and post-trib, and po- wherever. Even those who are saved during the millennial reign of Christ. Every one of them will be by the blood of the Lamb. And no other way. Go ahead. You just tag on to that. It's no less consistent than our belief in the Old Testament that's true. Exactly. Everybody who's ever been saved has been saved by the blood of the Lamb. Okay? Maybe not with as much information as we have, but nevertheless, in the same way. There's only one way to the eternal kingdom of God. Okay. Now, so there's a limit. God will limit what the little horn is able to do during the tribulation time by cutting it off. Back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 26, (laughs) where the end of the havoc and the evil begins. 
Gentiles, where the end of that is put in place. And so all of this going on that we've talked about, and then verse 26, you come to that wonderful word, but, right? But the court will sit for judgment in his dominion. Whose dominion? The little horns. And his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Meaning what? He's done. He's done. He's done. Now, what do we know about the destruction of the little horn? What do we know from Daniel about the destruction of the little horn? If you go back to chapter 2, the fourth kingdom and all the other kingdoms are crushed by the stone cut without hands. But specifically here in Daniel, he talks about what's going to happen to the little horn. We've just forgotten, right? In verse 11, he tells us exactly what's going to happen to the little horn. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn, that's the little horn, was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. What fire? Verse 10. From before the throne of God, the, the very end, at the beginning, and a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Who is him? The Ancient of Days who takes his seat on the throne. So this is judgment. And the little horn is cast into the fire of the river that flows from the throne of God. Okay? Now that's consistent with what? Revelation 19. Turn there for just a moment. Because I want to explain to you what... Well, we'll come back to it. Revelation 19, the next to the last verse, where he says, And the beast, same beast, was seized, and with him the false prophet, who's not given in Daniel, but he's given in Revelation, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive, into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. All right, now, Daniel says in Daniel chapter 7, where we just were, but his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Meaning what? He doesn't come back to life again? Because he's been destroyed forever? He certainly won't ever have a dominion again. He's thrown into the lake of fire where people do not burn up. Because a thousand years later, in Revelation chapter 20, in verse 20, it's not in verse 20, it's in verse 10. Got to get these right. A thousand years later, the millennial reign has taken place. Now, God once again puts down insurrection And it says, and the devil who deceived them, these are the people who were born during the tribulation, I mean, during the millennial reign, who do not believe in Christ, amazingly so. Nevertheless, they are there. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Daniel... When he writes, they're annihilated and destroyed forever, what he means is they will be consumed, yet not burned up forever and ever. They're not done away with. They still exist. They're just in torment for the rest of eternity. So while Daniel makes it seem like they're destroyed, Revelation informs our minds that they're destroyed in such a way that they continue to be tormented forever. Now, not only them, right? But every unbeliever you know who goes into eternity will be there with them, given later in the same chapter. That ought to motivate our evangelism. 
that will motivate you to that person you love who doesn't believe in Christ to share the faith. Because they'll be there with them. They will not be annihilated. There is no annihilation of human beings. They live forever, either in good or in bad. So that informs us, should motivate us. Go ahead. Yes, yes, yes. This is where they go. They always go to the Old Testament because the New Testament doesn't speak of that. Um, This is where soul sleep comes from, which is bad doctrine. And this is where annihilation comes from. One of the places where it comes from. Not true. Not true. Whole counsel of God, not specific chapters and verses. The whole counsel which is why we bring this up at this time, right? Now, in verse, he goes on, and so this is God limiting so that the elect won't be deceived. What time is it? Ten. We have time. All right, there's one thing I really want to show you out of this chapter while we're... All right, then this, verse 27, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. You notice that who's in charge of the kingdom? Who will it be given to? Well, it's Christ's kingdom, but it's given to the saints. Now, look back in, um, was it 18, where he says the same thing? Yes, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom forever. So the saints are there with God and not just bystanders. The king, they possess the kingdom with Christ. They're joint heirs with Christ Jesus. Okay, so there are benefits for the saints in this kingdom. All right, now, he says the sovereignty and the dominion and the greatness under what? The whole heaven. Okay? Such a phrase is only used six times in the New Testament. It always speaks of the actions or the dominion of God, never of man. This is the distinction between the dominion of God and the, all the other dominions that we see in Daniel. They're always over what? The whole earth, meaning what? Not only the known earth, but I believe the specific lands that are mentioned in Scripture, and only those. That's the whole earth. From a Jewish perspective, that's all there is. It's this land that is mentioned in Scripture. Not the whole planet, because we've talked about this. They didn't know about ancient China. They didn't know about... um, North America. They didn't know about the whole earth. They were limited, but it's not just because they were limited in their knowledge. It's limited, I believe, to biblical lands, those that are described in Scripture. Go ahead, Jerry. What passage did I just read? Well, it's Daniel 7 where he says, the, under the whole heaven which is distinct from the whole earth. If you look at what the beast does, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 23, the beast, the fourth beast, is over the whole earth. There's a distinction made there. Under heaven includes the whole planet. It includes everything under heaven. Whole earth does not. I believe. And we went through that. We had a, a, a half a lesson when we reviewed all the terms in Daniel where it talked about whole earth, or dominion of the whole earth, or extents of the earth, or reaching to the sky, all those different things that it talked about. And it appears to be limited to biblical lands that are described. Okay? Now, which means the dominion of the fourth beast is limited to those lands. And it's not worldwide. We'll talk about that a lot in later days. But what I really want to show you is I believe this verse informs our minds about verse 12 of this chapter. 
And I couldn't go back until we got here. And here's why. Read verse 12 with me. As for the rest of the beasts, remember this is after the, um, the little horn is thrown into the lake of the fire, and the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Those who teach differently than what I'm teaching you believe all four of the beasts exist at the same time. The fourth beast is annihilated. The other three beasts are given a time to reign. I don't believe that's what this means. Here's what I believe it means. Look at verse 27 is emphatic about two things about the kingdom of God, or at least two. One is that it's all the dominion under the heaven. The second is that it's given to the saints. The third is that it endures forever, right? Now look in verse um, 14. This is the dominion given to Christ by the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And you drop down to the very end, and it says, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, unlike the other four beasts. Then you go all the way back to chapter 2, where we first saw this eternal kingdom. I'm looking. Forty-four. In those day, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. So the emphasis on the kingdom of God is what? It goes on forever and is not left to another people. Now verse 12. What does verse 12 of chapter 7 mean? As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. What's different about the end of the fourth beast and the end of the first two and three beasts? What's different? The fourth beast is annihilated and an eternal kingdom comes in, they do not inherit the previous kingdom. The the eternal kingdom of God has nothing to do with the fourth beast. It's the exact opposite. They inherit nothing. But if you look at the first, second, and third beasts, when they died out, they lived on through those who took over their kingdoms. So an extension of life to some degree was given to the first three beasts as they were now taken over. They lived on. But the fourth beast, no way. He's totally done away with. That's the distinction. That's what verse 12 is telling you, is that the other kingdoms, when they died out, they continued to trickle on. Nowhere, you know I don't believe that Rome is the fourth beast, right? You're clear on that. But nowhere is an example of this given better than in Rome taking over Greece. Because as Rome did so, what language did they speak? Greek. Greek. Where did they get their culture, their gods, their architecture from? Greece. Greece. It's called Hellenistic, right? It permeated all of the Roman Empire. Greece lived on through the kingdom that took it over. Same thing is true to a lesser extent of the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians. Those kingdoms lived on. An extension of life was given to them. Yes, it was. Just went on. But not so much for the fourth beast. Things are totally different. That's what verse 12 says. So those who teach that all four of these beasts live at the same time don't understand what verse 12 is saying. They misunderstand it. They misinterpret it. And you'll find it in all but one of the readings that I've looked at. All but one. So understand what verse 12 means. And we couldn't get there. I couldn't show you that until we got to verse 27. Because it informs us what verse 12 is speaking of. And it's clear. Is it not? Go ahead. 
So I had. By this time, those three other beasts are allowed to hang around for a season or so? Yeah. That's after two-thirds of the world's population has... No, no. It just means when they were taken over, they lived on for a little while. And it could be hundreds of years. And it was. Yeah. Thanks for your time. Chapter 8 next week.